We're going to pray for our time together now. And our prayers this morning are going to be informed by the first half of our main Bible reading. So if you'd like to follow, uh, we're going to pick it up from Luke 10, chapter 10, verse 25. I'm reading from the ESV. There are some um, church Bibles at the back if you don't have your own. I'm going to read 10.25 to the end of the chapter. It says this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and and your neighbour... As yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. We're going to have the rest of our main Bible reading now, which is Luke chapter 11. So if you'd like to follow... I'm again reading from the ESV, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. It says this. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on the journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. 
I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone, the mute man spoke, and the people marvelled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armour in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb who bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be, give it, be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment and the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of a dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give 
as arms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Well, do keep that text open. We're going to be looking at that together. There's an outline of where we're going in the service sheet, so do make uh, use of that as you see fit. And at the end, there'll be an opportunity to ask any questions or comments uh, but before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is truthful, good and loving and therefore and sovereign, sorry. And therefore we pray that we would uh, be attentive to your word now. Help us to listen to it, to trust it and obey it. And so vindicate uh, you and your character. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. People sometimes say that there is not enough love in the world. It's the idea that love is a good thing and we need more of it. The danger of this approach is that we look uncritically at love. Might there be a wrong kind of love? In which case the problem it's not that there's not enough love in the world, but that it's not the right kind of love. Well, what might be considered as the wrong kind of love? What about self-love? I mean, that doesn't sound good, does it? Although, what if I were to package it this way? We need to love ourselves before we can love others. That's starting to sound a little bit more familiar. It's the kind of thing that our culture is promoting. You have to learn to love yourself before you can love others. And isn't this, in fact, what Jesus is teaching? Have a look down at Luke 10.27. Luke 10.27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbour as yourself. 
The summary of God's law involves loving God and loving your neighbour. But notice the way that we are to love our neighbour. The way we're to love our neighbour is put in terms of as yourself. Does that mean that loving our neighbour starts with loving ourselves? We need to love ourselves first before we can love our neighbour. Is this where that idea comes from? But notice that the command is not to love ourselves. Love of self appears to be assumed here. And understandably so, when we think about it. For the reality is that people naturally prize themselves, after Genesis 3, enormously highly. It was back at Genesis chapter 3 when humanity loved itself. Adam and Eve were deceived into thinking that God didn't have their best interests at heart. They acted for themselves in an act of self-love and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Unfortunately, their self-love mistook their best interests. They thought it was the way of advancement. But by this act of self-love, they brought judgment on themselves and the rest of humanity. It would seem that you love yourself best by not loving yourself first. Since Genesis chapter 3, self-love can be safely assumed. What then has been said when we're commanded to love your neighbour as yourself? Well, what's been said here is that with the measure that you love yourself, love your neighbour. In other words, if we want to know the scale that we're meant to love our neighbour, is this massive scale of as much as we do ourselves. Now, I take it that it's put in this slightly different way in terms of love of neighbour, um, as opposed to love of God, because we are to be holy for God in a way that we're not to be holy for our neighbour. You know, we don't worship our neighbour because our neighbour is a creature like us. If I start worshipping my neighbour, then I don't truly uh, God. I'm actually committing the act of idolatry. The parable that Jesus goes on to tell is the story of the Good Samaritan. It's one of the more well-known stories in the Bible, and the meaning of the story is often thought to define what Christianity is. If you're a good Samaritan, then you are a Christian. But the whole point of the parable is that he doesn't love his neighbour. The hero of the story is a Samaritan. And it was a Samaritan village back in chapter 9, verse 54, that the disciples were keen to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume. Now, this parable is told to one who wants to justify themselves and to convince them of their failure to love their neighbour. 
The mistake is made because people think that Jesus has come to bring about a moral program. But Jesus' mission is not a moral program, but the conquest of Satan. Since the beginning of Jesus' ministry, attention has been given to the driving out of demons. Uh, We saw it a couple of weeks ago in uh, Luke 8, when Jesus healed uh, a demon-possessed man. If you remember, the demons uh, came out of the man and entered the pigs. Then last week, we saw in Luke chapter 10, the 72 were rejoicing that the demons were subject to them in the name of Jesus. And then here, in Luke 11, verse 14, Jesus cast out another demon that was mute. Now, when you first come across this demonic activity, it can be quite confusing. Whereas when Jesus heals a blind man or a bleeding woman, you know, we can to some extent, identify with those predicaments. But the demon-possessed, I mean, what's all that about? I mean, is is the parallel today some form of uh, mental illness? Well, it's in Luke chapter 11 that Jesus explains the significance of these demonic encounters. And it represents his conquest of Satan. Let's read again from verse 14. Chapter 11, verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, just follow the logic through. At this point, there are some who think he's able to cast out demons because he's the head demon himself. He's in control of the demons because he is of that dominion and in charge of it. Verse 17, but he, Jesus, knowing their thought, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and divided household falls. And as Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Jesus' point here is that their interpretation doesn't work. If Jesus was the head demon, then him casting out the other demons would be self-destructive. The demonic world would be turned down on itself and collapse. Well, Jesus then offers a correct interpretation of what's happening. Verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him, overcomes him, he takes away his armour in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Rather than being on the same side as the demons, Jesus is an opposing force and one that is stronger. That is to say that there are two opposing realms in view here, the dominion of the demons and the kingdom of God. And the casting out of demons, says Jesus, indicates the defeat of the dominion of the demons. 
and the establishment of the coming kingdom of God. Now this, of course, fits beautifully with what Jesus said back in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. If you remember, when the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name, Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus was telling the 72 that they were witnessing the downfall of Satan. That Jesus sees the fall of Satan and Satan's power collapsing as the message of the kingdom is going out in the ministry of the 72 and people are being released from captive. Now, the con conquest of Satan, of course, has been much anticipated. Back as far as Genesis chapter 3, we have the promise of God that an offspring of Eve would crush the serpent's head. And with the coming of Jesus, this one has come. Well, it's in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54, that a dinner in a Pharisee's house is described. Jesus has been invited to dine with them. Yet Jesus rebukes a confrontational attitude about his failure to wash hands and engage in ritual cleansing. And his response involves this series of woes, first on the Pharisees and then on the lawyers who come to their aid. And Jesus reveals, not that they don't love, but that it is the wrong love. The whole theme going through is wrong love. Let's take a look. I mean, the Pharisees do have a love. Verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. The Pharisees have love, love for they love the seats uh, of honour among men. But it's, it's the wrong kind of love. The Pharisees are lovers of place and prestige. A love of the self. And this is to neglect justice and the love of God. Verse 42. And you notice here the parallel with the summary of God's law offered back in Luke chapter 10, verse 27. So doing justice parallels love of neighbour. Loving God is the other half. And they do neither of those things. The Pharisees lack love for God and neighbour. Now, it's not that there's no love, it's just not the right love. There's a different love at play here, and it's the love of self. Well, the lawyers try to step in and help, but they are no different. Verse 46, and he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The lawyers are laying burdens on people by adding to God's word. And adding to God's word is not loving. You know, if, you, if you love God, you don't add or take away or 
distract from his word. And if you love your neighbour, you explain God's word so they can obey it and not make it more difficult. Furthermore, teachers of the law should welcome God's messengers. Yet they don't love God, but stand with those who reject the prophets. Verse 47 to 51. And moreover, lawyers are meant to help interpret the law and provide knowledge and counsel. They're meant to help people enter. Yet they reject the knowledge of God both for themselves and others. Verse 52. The Pharisees and lawyers do not love God or their neighbour. They love all right. I mean, that house was full of love. But it's the wrong love. The love of self. Now, this idea of wrong love as opposed to right love is, I think, a very helpful one. And it's in contrast to the idea of less love and more love. Because, as we began with, people sometimes say that there's not enough love in the world. And if there isn't enough love in the world, then we do indeed need more love. But the problem is not too little love, but that the love is love of self and not love of God. That is to say that there is an awful lot of love in the world, but it's not the right kind of love. Self-love characterises fallen humanity. Jesus exposes it and pronounces judgment upon it. Love of God and love of neighbour, in contrast, characterises the kingdom of God. But we're not to understand the mission of Jesus as some kind of moral programme but the conquest of Satan. Because in the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God has finally arrived. And it's a coming that has set Jesus on a course for Jerusalem to lay down his life on a cross out of love. Out of love for his father and out of love for his people. Well, let's pray. I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, listen to the teaching of Jesus as he approaches Jerusalem to lay down his life. And we thank you for how he helps us to understand what's going on with the defeat of uh, the demons. That that is to be understood as, as a conquest of Satan and the establishment of your kingdom. And we thank you that therefore goes with that a judgment on those um, in um, the dominion of darkness and a calling out of self-love that so characterizes it. And Heavenly Father, thank you that in establishing his kingdom, it is a kingdom not of self-love, but a love of you and a love of neighbor. And we thank you that it is by his love 
of you and us, that he has made that possible, that we can be in his kingdom. And we do pray, please, that this distinction between the right love and the wrong love will help us not to be uncritical of love, but to help us know how it is that we are to relate to you and to one another as those in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is time for any questions or comments. I appreciate there's lots I've not said anything about. So you might want to ask a question about any of that or something about what I have said, any clarity? Katie. Okay, sure, yeah, no worries. Well, it's one of these things where we've, we've heard it so many times as in terms of this is, this is what Christianity is all about. It's, just, it's hard to kind of like, yeah, rethink it. Okay, so just for the recording, um, question was uh, concerning if the parable of the Samaritan isn't about this is what it is to be a Christian, then what is it about? So... Um, Now, interestingly, uh, I mean, it's quite a clever parable because I think it's one of these parables that when you explain it, you kind of kill it a little bit. So I'll kind of explain it and then, uh, you know, appreciate it. If once you've gutted the thing, you need to put it back together. Now, before we've even read the parable, it is worth saying that we ought to be a little bit suspicious of this man um, because, do you notice there's two... Well, actually, there's three clues. Um, the first clue is back in 1021, where Jesus says, um, uh, in the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for that, that was your gracious will. The things he's talking about are things concerning the kingdom of God, and notice that they've been kept from the wise and understanding. And the parable of the Good Samaritan begins in verse 25 with a lawyer. And so we're thinking, oh, a lawyer, a uh, teacher of the law, you know, we're already thinking, hmm, is it, has the kingdom of God been kept from him? Second clue in verse 25, do you notice that the reason he's asking the question is to put Jesus to the test? That's not good. And then verse 29, um, he, he's desiring to justify himself. Um, so we're kind of thinking this, um, uh, we're expecting the parable to um, expose him, reveal 
him for who he really is rather than a, you're going in the right direction, this is what's required of you. So I think the, the way the parable works is basically, um, I mean, in many ways, you could say the parable is saying what it means to love your neighbour. So positively, it's saying actually what the Samaritan did um, for this man is, is, is a description of what's expected of loving your neighbour. So in that sense, he is, Jesus is helping us to understand what is expected. The question is, uh, is the man to say, oh yeah, that's the kind of thing I'm doing, or okay, if that's what's required, I'm brought up short. And I think the, the sting in the tale is the drama of the different people who could have helped, but don't help. So a priest comes along, and he just cross, he doesn't help. A Levite comes along and doesn't help. But it's a Samaritan who comes along. And one thing we know about Samaritans is that they are despised by the Jews. Um, so it's interesting, I think it's been pointed out in verse 37, he doesn't even uh, name the Samaritan, he just says the one who showed him mercy. And so I think the way the parable works is that it exposes his heart that actually the idea that it's the Samaritan that is the, the one who loves his neighbour, that, that riles him, because like, I don't like Samaritans. In other words, you don't love, you don't love your neighbour because the Samaritans are your neighbours and you despise them. So I think there is that kind of sting in, in the tale that on the one hand, the plain reading of it is like, oh yeah, this is how to love your neighbour, go and do likewise. But the way that it's told is that the man would be ended up thinking, you know, it's exposed his, his lack of love for the Samaritan. Um, yeah, does that? Um, and I think that's why I kind of talked about the whole conquest of Satan, because I think when, you, when the, the power of the Samaritan is used as a, this is what it means to be a Christian, you kind of think, well, why does Jesus need to go to Jerusalem to die? You know, you just think, well, that's, that's it. We could have, he could have just told that parable and just said, that's, just, that's what's required of people in my kingdom. So you kind of think it, it's, you know, we've been sold short if we're thinking this is the essence of Christianity. Um, I think it contributes to how people in the kingdom of God are expected to live. But this is of a piece of the fact that the lawyers, and again, it goes on to the lawyers feature again at the end of chapter 11 with the Pharisees, is that actually they... They're characterised by self-love and not love of God and love of neighbour. Yeah? Okay. Anybody else? Helen. That's a quick hand. Oh, yeah. So I think... I think that's the Queen of Sheba. That's an easy question, is that it? <laughs> okay, can I explain? Okay, so the question is, there's the whole thing about the sign of Jonah, and then there is the queen of the south. What's going on here? So interestingly, this is a basically a, a how much more argument, because you notice twice it says, um, um, in the end of verse 31, 
something greater than Solomon is here, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here in verse 32. So basically, the logic is this. Something that's happened here, back in Israel's history, okay? And then Jesus' point is, well, we're now, something greater has happened, and therefore this response ought to be the same response in spades. Um, so let me explain. So Jonah, um, the story there is that he preached repentance to Nineveh, and Nineveh repented, which is remarkable. But the whole point is someone greater than Jonah is here, and therefore if they repented, how much more should you repent? Um, similarly with the Queen of Sheba. She recognised something about um, uh, uh, what was going on in Israel with Solomon, um, but didn't know actually that much what's going on. Whereas now, someone great is here, the Lord Jesus, and therefore, you know, you should um, repent and get what's going on. So in other words, he's sort of looking back in their history and seeing positive responses of repentance to um, God that he's not seeing now. And his point is, but you know, how much more should I expect to see this? So, um, and so basically he's just, but again, he's just, I mean, his, his conclusion is verse 29, this generation's an evil generation. In other words, I'm not... Um, uh, you, you've, had a, you've had enough of, of the revelation of me and I'm expecting a greater response than that was met previously. So is that, yeah. So basically it's a, he's saying, I'm not going to give you more signs. You need to repent for the forgiveness of your sins and how much more should you do that, bearing in mind what's happened. And obviously the point will be made in the book of Hebrews that if you don't, how much more severe will the judgment be? because to the greater revelation you've been given. Which is always a funny one, because often we, we're quite positive about the fact that Jesus reveals um, uh, the coming kingdom of God. He reveals God as Father. Um, he reveals the, the mystery of the gospel. But with that revelation comes this two-edged sword of, of both an expectation that we will respond rightly to it than the fear of a greater judgment if we don't, because you know, this idea that to more that's given, more is expected. That's the kind of a logic. Cool. Uh, Josh. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, you, I don't really want to no, I know. You, you read that, you just think like, what? Yes. Okay, so, and I was chatting to Tom earlier about one of the reasons why we're doing big um, sections is it helps you to think, how does it all fit together? What's the links? What are the themes that we're... Um, doing on. So I hope you know, you'll forgive us that you might just think, gosh, there's a lot of stuff. 
But I think if we went really slowly, you, you wouldn't see the wood for the trees. You, know, you, you can have the power of the Samaritan, and it might be hard to think anything other than this is what is expected of the Christian. You just think, well, hang on, this is, there's more going on here. So here, I think um, a, key, a key thing to make sense of this is the idea of repentance, which is kind of a big theme in Luke. So you kind of think, like, okay. So what's happening here is, is that it's not simply... Was basically, it's a warn. I mean, a, these are all warnings here. There's an awful lot of warning that's going going on from verse 24 all the way to the end of the chapter. So this is a warning, and the situation is is that you've got somebody who a demon has been cast out. But the question is, what um, what state does that leave the person in? And I think what's going on here is that that person is expected to repent, to realize that the casting out of the demon is, according to Jesus, verse 20, the finger of God, and that the kingdom of God has come upon you. They recognize that and repent and enter the kingdom of God. And obviously, if you're in the kingdom of God, you are, um, you share in the conquest of Satan that the king of the kingdom um, is... Um, executing, okay? But there's no mention of repentance here, and actually then leaves that person in a, in a vulnerable situation, right? even more vulnerable, that actually, um, if you're not in the kingdom of God, then where are you? You're back in the dominion of, of demons and subject to them. So I think it's quite helpful because it's, it's not simply the removal of the demon that's, that's of the importance. It's actually recognising that means the kingdom of God has come and that we make every effort to enter the kingdom of God because that's the only, that's, that's the place of refuge. And if we don't do that, we're left vulnerable. I think that's what's going on. Do you, you, yes, it's kind of, I mean, it doesn't, I mean, yes, and I think that's where, like, having it in the, um, where everything else is going on, and you think, hang on, this is just, he, Jesus just talked about um, the fact that um, people are marveling that he cast out demons. He's saying there's a warning here that it's not simply enough to cast out a demon, because if that happens, they can just come back. The, the idea is you need to recognize what that means. Yeah. Cool. Well, have a think. Go on, Mackie, do you. Oh, yeah. Oh, look at that. Two, two. Anybody? Uh, we normally have three. Anyone? Uh, Bernie, go on, Nikki. Quick one. Going to set again. There was some shuffling outside. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, okay, that's fair enough. Um, um, the question is, how does... <laughs> Congress of Satan and the wrong right love relate together. Have I just like kind of preached two sermons and <laughs> don't relate? So thank you. So what I was thinking is this, is that basically um, you've got two kingdoms, the dominion of the demons, the kingdom of God. Okay, The dominion of the demons is characterized by love of self. The kingdom of God is characterized by love of God and love of neighbor. Okay, and so it's not a surprise with the 
um, the defeat of this and the establishment of this, that Jesus is going to say something about um, that which characterizes those two. So in other words, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are called out precisely because they love themselves. That is that they're in the dominion of the demons, which is about to be overthrown. Whereas if he's come to establish the kingdom of God, then actually those in the kingdom of God um, will need to um, put off the wrong love and put on the right love. And so he's establishing sort of kingdom of God norms. So I think that's what... But I think that's quite helpful then because if you've got these two kingdoms, you've got this antithesis, you then got the wrong love and the right love. And that's helpful for us because it's not the case of... There's lots of love in the dominion of uh, darkness. It's just it's the wrong kind of love. But that helps us then not to be uncritical about love in terms of what is it, how are we to, as those in the kingdom, how are we to, how are we to love? And it goes back to love of God and love of neighbour. Is that cool? Great. All right, we'll um, stop there. And we're going to sing a song um, now that reflects on the Father's love for us.